AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says something witty. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. I'm Joe McCormick. <laughs> and today we wanted to talk about some of the gimmicks and uh, techniques used in, really, in cinema, as mostly in film. There's some television bleed over as well. Other entertainment forms. Yeah, but we really wanted to talk about what it's like to create an experience for a film beyond just these are moving images or apparently moving images and sound that's coming at you. And uh, to really start with that, I guess I guess it'd be fun to talk about some of the wacky, crazy ones that theater uh, theater owners and, and film producers experimented with mainly like back in the the 50s and 60s 
Yeah, older listeners might remember traces of some of these, but if or, you're younger, or if you, you've seen some movies like Matinee, which has a, a character who is very much like William Castle. We'll be talking about about Castle. Uh, if you've seen that, then you may be familiar with some of these as well. I think this was mostly driven um, back when television started to come out and movie theaters were panicking a little bit and going like, no one will come see movies anymore if right. everyone has this television in their house. Even though it's only a 12-inch screen, we, we need to do something impressive. This is uh, this may sound really familiar to people today because it's the same sort of stuff we see movie the movie industry thinking about uh now in the in the realm of the digital world but you know we'll get into that kind of stuff so some of these crazy gimmicks huh how about smellovision how about smellovision did you guys did you guys see uh what what was the earliest example not not of smellovision itself because that was that was technically patented but the idea of the idea of coupling smells with viewing of something in a cinema what was the earliest example you found do you know? I know what I, I can I tell no you. What idea. year? 1906 was the <laughs> earliest example. What? 1906. So before they had talkies, they were it was pumping a, smells into movie theaters. It was according according to the source. It was a Pennsylvania theater owner who used a fan to diffuse the smell of rose oil while showing off footage of a Rose Bowl football game, American football. So, huh. uh, it was just this idea of trying to create a more immersive experience. Uh, theoretically, or at least uh, by rumor, Disney was looking into incorporating smells in the cinematic experience, but, uh, ultimately dismissed it for being too expensive and not reliable enough. Disney, huh? Yeah, didn't stop it, other people from trying. I mean, I'm sorry, it's just so stupid. What, smell-o-vision? <laughs> really? I mean, it's it, that's obvious, but it no, what's not obvious is the extent of the stupidity. What on earth? I mean, it's it's like a joke. Well, I I can't believe this was real. I I don't know, Joe. I'm not so harsh on it as you are, but that's because <laughs> I've I've had this I've seen seen i've smelled this sort of approach in other forms not not movies i've never gone to a smell of vision film although i think i did go to something at the university of georgia a midnight movie where they handed out scratch and sniff uh uh little uh, uh pamphlets for a film and how, if i'm not mistaken it was um pink flamingos anyway so oh no <laughs> yeah well, no, smell vision itself was invented and patented by a guy uh, named uh, Hans Laub and uh, was used in a film. The, fir- the earliest version I could see that was used in the actual commercially re- released film was in 1959, and the movie was called Scent of Mystery. <laughs> of course it was, right? And apparently the smells involved things like pipe tobacco. The smell of pipe tobacco, and it used special pipes to pipe in smells into the theater. Now, Joe, I, I agree. Like, if I were watching a movie, I would just find this distracting. I wouldn't necessarily find it immersive. However, I have been to things like um, certain, like, like amusement parks. Disney has a few amusement parks where they have 3D movies where they will pipe in smells when something is happening. Mm-hmm. And, or um, on, on Spaceship Earth at Epcot, uh, which was opened in 1982, I believe. Yeah. Uh, they, they have a couple of different portions of the ride where, you know, you're going through an orange grove, so they pump in orange scent. Or- yeah. Yeah. And then there's uh, Soren, uh, which in Florida is called Soren over California. In California, it's just called 
Soren, but it's a ride where you are, it's like you're gliding over the landscape of California. And as you go over certain landscapes, they pipe in certain smells. Like if you're gliding over uh, a pine forest, you get the pine smell over an orange grove. It's oranges, you know, over it's smog and garbage. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And despair. Yeah. Those are the smells you get over LA. Uh, boy, we're winning fans all over the place today. So anyway, uh, you know, it's something that has been used. I don't think it will ever go anywhere beyond novelty. I mean, it was obviously something that was meant to try and grab people. There, it's funny because there was a, a competing technology at the same time as Smellovision called Aroma Rama. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. And that they had the, that's so, delightful. They had so smell who won wars. the smell wars. I think was we it? all lost, Joe. Okay. I think we all lost. Not only did not only are those no longer really active, but I'm sure there were some spectacular failures. Well, I mean, there, there's lots of psychological research about how closely we associate memories with smells sure. and, and, and how, yeah, I how, how like, deeply people do associate smells with feelings and that therefore, you know, I think that the, the, the yeah. reasoning here somewhere was A, we need a gimmick and B. I, I think the problem is that most people will be like, hey, remember that stinky movie we saw a few years ago? Um, so when you're listening to this forward thinking podcast, remember to drive past a paper mill and, uh, <laughs> you can and to just get drive some past, wonderful memories drive Right past my hometown, which was not was sandwiched between paper mills and chicken uh, farms. So, actually, I, I would say that that really what we smell like is is mints, uh, yeah. warm electronics, and um, insulating foam. Occasionally tea, yeah. but not today. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's talk about some of the other gimmicky stuff. So I mentioned William Castle. Oh. William Castle. The tingler. The tingler. <laughs> yes, he, he was known, famous, famous for coming up with these really gimmicky things to try and pull people into the theater. So if you don't know William Castle, you've probably, the one you would know is House on Haunted Hill. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Right. He, he yeah. did some, he did some stuff that has, you know, not, not even cult following, like legitimate film, like it, like this uh, is, this is a movie that you wouldn't necessarily call it a great film, but it's such a great example of a certain era and a certain type of movie making that it's, it's got a warm place in many critics' hearts. House on Haunted Hill is, I mean, cheesy as hell. It's oh, got sure. Plastic skeletons yeah. and all that, but it's, it's fun. Yeah. You should see it, you know. And so filmically, I'd, I'd say it's interesting at least. But it's, the, you know, it's pretty yeah. high art for that kind of schlock you, sort of. You got Vincent Price just doing his thing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Being mm-hmm. being super Vincent Price in that movie. Like yeah. Vincent Price at his priciest. <laughs> I don't know that he actually charged a lot for that film, but uh you mentioned the Tingler which used Percepto. And Percepto was a gimmick that Castle came up with that was very clever. So the Tingler. Because it's actually even worse of a gimmick than Smell-O-Vision. I love this, this gimmick. It's so ridiculous. So the Tingler was a movie about, uh, this, this weird parasite that could attach itself to people's spines and you would kill them by screaming. The idea that if you screamed that they couldn't handle that and they would fall over dead. Uh, but they, you would get this weird tingling, shocking sensation if they were to attach themselves to you. And in the movie, in the course of the film, the narrator says that the, there's a one of these alien creatures has escaped and made its way into the very theater that you are sitting in. 
that's incredible. <laughs> so what William Castle did was I he, mean, really, I'm incredulous. He went to. <laughs> he went to. He <laughs> really did not believe that. So Castle went to several theaters and it's convinced like them. They broke the fourth wall for that. Okay. Sorry. All right, settle down, children. Castle went to several theaters and convinced them to install these these little vibrating motors that would cause the the seats to vibrate at a very high frequency, almost like it was an electric shock. Something you, like a joy buzzer or your yeah, cell phone. Yeah, it was going. a or, less litigious time. Well, I mean, it wasn't – I guess it could scare you, but it couldn't actually hurt you. It's like, have you ever been to – uh, you know, an arcade or one of those amusement park places where they have the thing about, you know, do you dare to hold on to these electrodes? It's, it's usually set up so it looks like it's a, a electric chair and the, it's all based on like the, your sense of fear and, and daring. Like, are you going to hold on as the, uh, as it continues to increase the voltage? Well, there's no actual electric current running through you. No one wants to get sued. It's just little motors that are vibrating just like the ones that you have in your typical cell phone. But the idea was they put these underneath the seats and the projectionist was supposed to activate these buzzers at this point in the movie so that people sitting there in the theater would suddenly think, oh, I'm being attacked by a tingler and they have to scream. And you don't even have to install them on all the seats. You just have to do a a good uh, scattering of the seats so that you catch a few people. They start screaming. It gets everyone screaming. It makes it an interactive experience. And it, Castle was hoping that it would mean that there'd be more butts in those seats as opposed to butts jumping out of the seats because they're suddenly buzzing. Um, <laughs> it was called Percepto. That was the name of that particular gimmick. There was another one called Illusiono. I think he might be detecting a trend with William Castle's <laughs> approach. So Illusiono was uh, similar to what I'll be talking about when we get to 3D. Spoiler alert. We will be talking about 3D in this episode. But, uh, you know, the, the traditional, the old style 3D glasses, the anaglyph glasses, the ones that would have a red lens and a cyan lens, he gave filters that were similar to this. So it wasn't, it wasn't a pair of 3D glasses. It was like a little piece of cardboard and you would view the movie through one of the two lenses, either the blue one or the red one. And the reason for this was that it was for a film called 13 Ghosts. And if you were to use the blue one, I, I think it was the blue one, it would filter out the ghosts because the ghosts were all in blue. So you couldn't, that the would show up as white if you're looking through a blue filter. So you wouldn't see the ghosts through the blue filter. But if you were to look through the red filter, you could see all the ghosts because they would show up as, as black instead of uh, white. And so, uh, you know, if you wanted to be terrified, you would look through the red lens. But if you were too scared, you could look through the blue lens and just watch as characters are reacting to absolutely nothing on screen, as far as you can tell. Uh, again, total gimmick, but an interesting little approach to trying to make movies more than just uh, and something you could replicate at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that gets us into the idea of the 4D experiences that we've, I've kind of alluded to with some of the Disney rides. Disney's big about this with their 3D stuff. They have a, a 3D film called It's Tough to Be a Bug, which is based on the characters from A Bug's Life. Um, and um, that involves things like smell, like a stink bug at one point goes off. So you get sprayed with a stinky kind of smell. Uh, there's also a part where raindrops are falling, so you get hit by a little bit of water. There's a bit where hornets are flying around. You get poked in the back. Oh. <laughs> there's, a, there's a there's not really a sharp stick. Uh, by the way, spoiler alert for anyone who was planning on seeing this and hasn't yet. Um, they're also the best part. I think is at the very end where the lights go off, and then it. Te- uh, I think Flick tells the cockroaches that it's time to clear out, and there are little uh, actuators on the the seat 
underneath where your butt is and then those go off and so you feel like this movement under your butt of the cockroaches running away. That's wonderful. Uh, Hmm. My wife refuses to watch this because she is really, really scared of bugs, even cartoon ones. She's going to kill me that I said this. Fortunately, (laughs) I don't think she listens to my podcast, so I think I'm okay. (laughs) But, um, and that, you know, that, those sort of gimmicks are still kind of, uh, around, but for the most part, they're you know, limited to things like amusement parks or, or right, specific experiences. Something where you can build out uh, a theater to include those, like a, again, at Disney, the, uh, the Alien Encounters ride that I think is now Lilo and Stitch themed. But, yeah, um, same, but, uses the same sort of stuff though, mm-hmm, in yeah. both cases. Yeah, where, where, but something's a permanent installation so right. that you're not wasting money having, you know, a, a, a theater tech put buzzers underneath all your seats right for one for one out. movie and then right. you never use it again yeah there there's some uh, other examples of stuff that was used in a more trying trying to roll it out in a more wide format like uh sense around you guys have heard i'm sure the term sense around yeah sense around is not the same thing as surround sound okay sense around was essentially using subwoofers to generate super low frequency sounds like very low on the bass register Lower than what most people would be able to hear, knowing that there are always outliers in the human experience, so some people can hear frequencies beyond what most of us can hear. But you could feel it, because, you know, sound is a physical uh, a physical effect. And so it's that low, low, low rumbling where it would make your seat rumble, and in fact was rolled out along with the film Earthquake. But uh, Earthquake came out around the same time as another uh, film that was received pretty well called Godfather 2. <laughs> and so apparently there were a lot of complaints from Godfather 2 viewers who were saying like I wanted to enjoy the movie but the earth kept quaking because of your sense around system that you had installed in the next theater next door showing Ooh. earthquake. Yeah, a lot of bleed over there because it was just this low rumbling. And uh you know, low rumbling and earthquake fine. In Godfather 2 not so great. Um so, uh, but there, there are other theaters right now that are installing things. I know there's one in, at least one in Austin, uh, and I'm sure there are theaters in, in very, uh, there has to be one in LA. I don't know of any in Georgia that are installing seats that give haptic feedback as you watch a movie where they'll vibrate along with the soundtrack. Uh, like there's uh, one company called Trimmer FX that does these where they'll install these seats where, uh, like if a gunshot goes off, you'll actually feel a little impact on your back. Or if someone is uh, like in a horror movie and you can hear their heartbeat, the seat will throb at the same frequency as the heartbeat, that kind of stuff. Uh, I was thinking while you were saying that that this is uh, sounds stupid, sounds like a fad. But actually, haptic feedback has caught on in other realms like the rumble controller right. in video, video games. games. Yeah, it's now yeah. totally standard. And and I would say that um, as a as a survival horror gamer fan uh, uh, or game fan, the gamers are nice too. Um, uh, the, the you know no ha- having that having that that feedback when when your heart is beating is is a really useful for not having to look off the screen uh, or to a corner of the screen to uh to, to to see what your health meter is like and b um it's so scary it's so yeah. immediate well yeah they've actually turned that into a, a true gameplay element where it's not just enhancing it's become part of the gameplay like there are uh, another good example is a game where you are trying to complete a particular task and. Uh, the controller will rumble as you get closer to failing that task. So it's an actual alert system sure. telling you, uh, "Hey, you're 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 doing this wrong. You need to 
rethink it. Um, I do this all the time as I play things like Skyrim and I'm trying to pick, to, uh, pick a lock, you know. Um, it's useful stuff. So we've talked about all these gimmicks. Yeah. Here's the real question. Okay. I think. 3D. All right. Uh, mega high definition. Uh-huh. Uh, high frame rates. Uh-huh. Are these true advances that are going to stick around and stand the test of time, or are they gimmicks like the others? Uh, let's take them case by case. Right. So let's start with 3D. I have to start off going on the record. Don't like it. Joe does not like 3D. Not a fan. I I don't I don't mind it. I I prefer I if I have the chance to see a movie not in 3D, I take it. Um, but uh, but High but five. I but I did. But I did very much enjoy Coraline in 3D because I have read the book multiple times. I wasn't needing to pay attention to the story, and it was pretty. Well, I like – if a movie was made with 3D in mind, I enjoy the 3D experience. If it's a movie that's been converted for 3D, I almost never enjoy that. I also did enjoy My Bloody Valentine in 3D because, like, Lady's head went right at the screen. Okay, here's my one exception. Yeah, if – if the 3D is treated as a joke in a stupid movie... Like Jaws 3D? <laughs> yeah, okay. Or I was thinking uh, Friday the 13th, Part 3, Another 3D. Another good example. Uh, yeah, these why are just, do the third movies have to be in 3D? Well, they just do. They somehow often fall in a 3D craze. Yeah. Um, so if the movie is horrible anyway, if the movie itself is sort of a novelty or a gimmick, I can sort of get behind it then. Anything where I at all want to feel immersed in the storytelling and has any real dramatic element, I am. I think 3D is just stupid. I, I don't I, like it, it at all. Out, it takes me out of it very much. I, it, it, it all depends. It makes me more aware that I'm watching a movie instead it, of. It less. all depends on the 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 execution for me. In some cases, I've really much enjoyed that where I wasn't. You know, af- after that initial, oh, this is. 3D, uh, I just totally forgot about it and enjoyed the film for what it was. And then there are other cases like um, I've seen some nature films that were shot in 3D that were gorgeous because you could get this crazy depth of field. And it was really more about the depth, not stuff coming out at you. That's the way a lot of those early 3D implementations were, right? It's the, it's, 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 it's the character saying, here, take my hand and reaching yeah. out at the screen the way nobody does. Or more often, it's like, have some coffee, reach toward the screen. <laughs> now, my favorite or, one's Jaws you know. 3D, where it was a hypodermic needle, where they're testing the needle by, you know, squirting out just a little bit yeah. from it. And so they pu- they hold the needle right out to the camera and then squirt it. And it's then- hilarious to see those movies not in 3D, because <laughs> they're just all these random shots that are lingering for way too long. And are just completely unnatural. Yeah. yeah. Um, Okay, but so we, we've sort of blended all 3D together. 3D actually has had some fairly distinct technological, uh, phases. Yeah, let's, right? let's talk about what's happening first. So, so was, was te- stereoscopic first? Uh, anaglyph really was first. The okay. anaglyph glasses, which are the red, blue the red kind blue. that you're thinking yeah. okay. of, red cyan. But, but to understand how these all work, let's just, because they all follow the same basic premise. Mm -hmm. It's just that they do it in different ways. And that premise is to present each eye with its own set of images. And then your brain does all the rest of the work. Your brain takes in these two sets of images and combines it into a full picture, just the way our actual eyes work all the time. So for 3D to work, first of all, you need two eyes. So you need two eyes and you need to have 
relatively normal vision. It's it's the idea that our eyes are positioned on our heads in such a way that they are taking in information from slightly different positions. Binocular vision. Right. So your left eye and your right eye, because they're not located immediately on each other, <laughs> means that the information they're receiving is slightly different. So if I'm looking at an object, my eyes converge on that object and then the information I get back lets me make judgments like how far away that object is. There are other cues that also tell us how far away something is, things like perspective and all that kind of stuff. But parallax, which is what I'm talking about right here, is a big one. The further away an object is, the closer to parallel your eyes are. And so parallax becomes less and less important. It's really more important for things that are within like a couple hundred feet of you. And the closer it is, the more your eyes are converging on that point. So that's the basis for the 3D films. They want to present you with these two sets of images that are engineered in such a way as to give you the illusion that an object is closer or further away from you, the viewer. And uh, it's important to do this so that it estimates about how far apart the average person's eyes are, which is why two people could go into a 3D movie. One person thinks it's a great effect and the other person doesn't because one person's eyes are closer to the average as far as the spacing goes than the other person. That can totally happen. Now, anaglyph glasses, the red-blue ones, are those old ones that you think about when you see, you know, any any sort of like the 1950s people all gasping in their seats as something is coming out of the screen. Um, and essentially it uses the same sort of technique that that filter approach did, the one I talked about, uh, Illusion-O with K- William Castle. So anything that is blue on the screen, or cyan really, I should say, cyan on the screen, uh, through the, the, the cyan lens is going to show up as white. Anything that's red on the screen shows up as black. The opposite is true for the red lens. Anything that's cyan will show up as black. Anything that's red will show up as white. You end up showing these two different sets of images on top of whatever it is you're showing, and that's your brain does the rest of the work. Your your right eye gets one set. Your left eye gets the other set. Your brain combines them together to get the full picture. Now, if you're talking about polarized glasses, you're talking about polari- polarized light, polarization and uh, this is a concept that's uh, that waves that can oscillate with more than one orientation. Sound is not one of those. Sound travels, it propagates across uh, the same direction as the medium that's vibrating. But light, you can actually polarize into different orientations. And so you generally will polarize it in a 90 degree offset from one to the other. Um, and then you have lenses that will accept one set of that polarized light, but deny the other, and the other lens does the opposite. So again, each eye gets its own set of images. Both of them are being projected just slightly offset, both in space. Like if you were to take the glasses off, it would look have that blurry look to it. That's so that these two different sets of images will come in slightly different to simulate that parallax. Uh, and it'll also be because, you know, you're not wearing those glasses to block off half of them. The problem with polarized glasses, at least if you've got just simple polarized glasses, is that if you tilt your head, the effect goes away because you are actually matching that angle, that that polarized angle. So if you start to tilt your head while watching a film or TV show using polarized lenses, and they are regular polarized lenses for 3D, uh, the effect goes away if you want to do something like recline on your couch, like I do all the time. But if you have circular polarized lenses, 
then they end up polarizing it in what's called a left-handed or right-handed fashion. And that would actually allow you to tilt your head because it's not dependent upon that uh, that same angle as the regular ones. Then we get to the most advanced type uh, as far as the glasses version, which are active lenses. And active lenses have little LCD shutters in them, essentially, that open and close at a rate that is undetectable by a person. So if you were just to look through your glasses, you wouldn't be able to tell that essentially the the right side or left side becomes opaque at a really quick rate. It's so fast that to us it just seems like there's no it's interruption. Just open. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the images on the screen are synchronized to the shuttering that's going on on your lenses. So when the left lens is quote unquote open, it's getting the left set of images. When the right lens is open, it's getting the right set of images. And so you have to have a really good refresh rate on your television screen and you have to have um, glasses that are attuned to that system. Uh, you can't just, you know, and also you can't switch any of these glasses out for any of the other systems. It won't work because it's only for uh, content that's been made with that system in mind. So that's how they all work. Then you have glasses free 3D. Have you guys ever seen glasses free 3D? I have not personally. I have not either. Uh I I went on a tour of a local there's a, a place here in Atlanta that does glasses free 3D screens for things like uh casinos or movie theaters or whatever. It's not meant for uh like a full film or television show. It's meant to kind of show a looping like uh commercial type thing. Uh it was really really convincing, very effective if you were standing in a sweet spot. Uh these use so you're not wearing glasses. Essentially, the, the technology of the glasses is built into the screen itself. But this means that light is being directed so that your left eye, again, is getting one set of images and your right eye is getting the other set of images. But only if you're standing in these certain little sweet spots. If you're in between sweet spots, you're getting conflicting information and then you start not feeling so good. <laughs> or at least the images look all blurry and chunky and nothing seems to be working. Um, so it's, it's good if you have control over where your audience is. This is the same sort of technology that the Nintendo, Nintendo 3DS uses. Um, the 3D display uses the same sort of thing because the thought is, well, the player is pretty much guaranteed to be directly in front of the screen because that's how you hold a mobile gaming system. But if you were to be offset a little bit to the left or right, the effect starts to get a little messy. So, uh, all of that's called auto, uh, auto stereoscopy, but there are different versions of that as well that don't involve the glasses free 3D approaches I've talked about that use things like the holographic cube type approach, you know, stuff we've talked about in our previous podcasts, but I wanted to really uh, hit the ones that I've seen implemented into television screens at least. Uh, so that's how they all work. Now comes the discussion of is 3D legit or is it a gimmick? So, what do you guys think? Joe, we know what you think. Well, I mean, <laughs> here are a few things to consider. Um, 3D Im- uh, 3D phases come and go yeah. in movies. Oh yeah, there's like yeah, there's usually a cycle. Yeah, it's in for a while, people get sick of it, it goes away. They also tend to coincide I think with times when the movie business is looking for a way to get more people into the theaters. Sure. Um, and it, there's usually some ulterior motive you can explain. It's it's not like you have filmmakers very often saying, as an artistic choice, I would like to film this in 3D. 
that's my vision for the audience. Yeah, there are a few, but it's first of all, you, it's hard I, to tell how sincere they are. I think sure. that's pretty rare. I think it doesn't really enhance the drama of any serious story. And it's even when it's good technically, and often most of the 3D I've seen doesn't look very good to me. Yeah, it's you've just probably seen a lot of films of a, that have been converted to 3D, yeah. which are terrible. Uh, it's just kind of silly. Uh, but even if it's really good, why? Just why? Yeah. Well, I mean, the the there are a couple of answers I would give if I were an artist who was making films. I my why would be would be to create an experience that you could not replicate elsewhere. And part of that is going into the whole movie going experience in the first place. This idea of seeing a film with a community of viewers as opposed to sitting at home. So making it more of an experience and less of this is me t- trying to tell you a story it goes beyond that right i'm creating something beyond just just sitting you down to tell a story to you uh, although that's still in my mind the most important part of any film it's just a part of it now um the and of course there's also for fil- for movie studios there's a great incentive to go 3D which is it's a lot harder for people to uh to bootleg films that way mm-hmm. because they can't replicate the actual 3D-ness of it. You know, if they get the, especially if it's a movie that's only distributed that way and it's only distributed that way digitally, then that doesn't do anyone any good uh, if they try and get hold of the digital file because, you know, you can't really view it on something that wasn't designed to project it and, and you don't have the right kind of glasses or whatever. Although if someone is willing to watch an entire movie that someone recorded on their cell phone, then probably they're willing to watch yeah, a weird, there's that too. 3D but thing, you know, it's but. one. It's just one of those ideas of of yet sure. another way of, yeah. of combating piracy. I mean, it's that's not the only thing, but that is a factor. Um, um my <laughs> bottom line is I can only put up with it for camp factor. Yeah, I, I if it's done well, uh, and it's only been done well a few times in my experience, uh, I enjoy it. I, I I've seen some demo reels where. There were uh, specific instances where I thought, wow, uh, if I really like sports, 3D would be amazing because there's some great like uh, footage of football games in 3D where it felt like I was on the field with these guys watching them play. And, and it was really exciting, but I'm not a football fan, so I wouldn't want that. Uh, I did, however, once see a demo reel that included footage from a WrestleMania, and I was like, I am all over that. <laughs> And I am not even kidding. If I had a 3D television and I had a 3D version of Royal Rumble, I would be watching that on repeat. Um, I think I think it's a gimmick in in the long run, but um, but I mean, but 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 a clever one, an interesting one for for certain applications. I think it's going to be a pervasive gimmick. I think it's certainly shown that uh, like the 3D television craze, and by craze I mean from manufacturing side. Uh, lasted about two or three years at CES. Like that was the big thing. Every yeah, yeah. every this, television out there was a 3D TV. This year at CES, it was it it was really scaled back. There were a lot of them that were 3D capable, but they were not being they weren't being marketed weren't as a forefront. 3D television. Yeah. And I think the, the one of the reasons for that is that a lot of manufacturers have discovered what a lot of tech journalists were saying is that people just don't really want to have glasses that they have to keep track of and wear when they watch their TV. Uh, not, of course, not all content would be in 3D unless you had a television that converted everything into 3D. And I have seen those and I was not a big fan. Um, but it's just, you know, it's just one of those things that I, I think most people just don't want to have to keep up with that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just, the, the content that they're getting, 
the experience they're getting isn't compelling enough to justify the expense and the frustration of having to keep up with not just a remote control, but glasses as well. I was more interested this year at CES. Uh, they were showing off a couple of 3D TVs that, that didn't show images in 3D, but you could have two people sitting next to each other watching different shows on the same television. Yeah. You, oh, yeah, yeah. And that was kind of cool. Again, using polarized light or right. even active, well... Yeah, I guess you could use active but I mean, shutters, but but you have to have headphones and you have to have your own glasses and, and yeah. The, I mean, the and best impl- implementation I saw of that was for uh, video games, where you have two people right. playing, like say, a racing game, where so they can't screen oh, look without a split screen, right? You right, have the whole screen. You would have the time. whole screen for you, and you could not see what your opponent was doing, so you couldn't cheat. Oh. Like, let's say we're all it's playing first-person shooters. It's part of the game. So we're all playing first-person shooters, and we can't tell that Lauren is just camping yet again behind the little teleporter. Hey, I don't camp. I strategize. Yeah, it's a legitimate strategy. Camping with rockets, let me tell you. Anyway, so, uh, but you wouldn't be able to tell that, because you would all have the full view of the screen for yourself. Um, and it would only, if you took the glasses off, all you would see is just a big mishmash of all the different images. Um now, granted, I don't know that you could do. I guess you could theoretically do that with more than two people. You would just have to polarize the light in various ways, and in a way that wasn't going to interfere with uh, the other players. It would be interesting. Two would be easy. More than that would be difficult. Also, you're talking about you know every time you talk about having to do two images or two streams, you're doubling the amount of information you have to you handle. Have to process, too. Yeah. yeah. Which kind of brings us to these. The discussion about high def, you know, talking about high def, high def, <laughs> high definition. What it's called high def. Yeah, Dude, I guess you. Yeah. It's, it's what it's a thing. Um, yeah, high definition TV, HD TV, and uh, ultra high definition, and all of those uh, designations, and these crazy, crazy resolutions that we're seeing coming out on televisions in the near future. Uh, doesn't bother me. I, I, I'm cool with it. No, I'm I'm cool with it. It's well, no. I, okay, I'll say I don't think it's a gimmick. I think that there uh, is certainly a way in which high definition is enhances the viewing experience. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's like totally necessary. Like the you know the resolution of a DVD on a you know normal I don't know what 420p TV does not drive me crazy. Okay, it drives me crazy. But then I have a big TV. So it also okay. depends on the size of the television, right? Every time the technology improves, you know, every time a new gaming console comes out or, or, or whatever, um, you know, we we look at these things and we say, this, this is amazing. This is more better than I have ever seen video games be. And, and then, you know, when we go back and play things on the previous console and, and we can't imagine that this ever looked good, but then another five years later, it's, it's the same thing over and over again. My favorite thing is, uh, the earliest CGI effects from the nineties. Oh, yeah. You remember how, how awesome people thought these looked sure. back then? Now they look just beyond crappy do you remember like check out uh, what Ah. go back and watch the movie mortal Kombat, and see if you remember what people were saying about it in the 90s like (laughs) these cgi effects will blow your mind they are so good do you remember the film that had probably I, i think it's one of the earliest full cgi characters um only in one scene it wasn't like a full character that was throughout the whole film uh young sherlock holmes Oh, right. Because it had this, uh, yeah. you never saw it? No. Young Sherlock Holmes. There it's was important. a, there's a, a stained glass, 
uh, knight that becomes um, animated through a person's uh, hallucination and it attacks the person. The person's actually just hallucinating that it's happening, but you're seeing it from their perspective. And it was all CGI and at the time was incredibly advanced and super cool. And today you'd think, wow, that looks like something from a super cheap uh, video software demo reel. But getting back into high definition, I mean, there are a lot of different types out there. And it really, it really does depend upon things like your screen size. You know, it's, it's, oh, yeah. if I have a, if I have a 12 inch screen that's, that's at 1080p and a, I have a 60 inch screen that's at 1080p, that's two different experiences. Sure. And that's also how your eyeballs work. I mean, the, the human eye, although certainly not as good as many other animals' eyeballs in terms of, uh, visual acuity, um, studies done back into the 1940s showed that of the, you know, say 120 million rods that we've got in our eyeballs, um, only about 5 to 14 of them really need to be activated for us to recognize that something is happening visually in front of us. Hmm. Um, so we we see a lot. Uh, one, one Dr. Roger Clark, uh, who's an imaging specialist who's working on spectrometry like with Cassini and stuff mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. did a bunch of the math and, uh, you know, it... It, it, it depends on how big the image is. You know, if, if we're talking about a, a 20 by 13.3 inch print viewed from 20 inches away, we only need about 74 megapixels to approximate the human eye's resolution. All right. So 74 million pixels, essentially. Only, only, um, you know, and so. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I can give you I can give you an, uh, an indication of what that is as far as resolution for video screens, keeping in mind that video and still images are different. Uh, and also the idea that, that, you know, when you're talking about improvements, it all, it's a very, it's a very subjective experience. I will say that personally for me, I, I have looked at 2K screens. I've looked at 4K screens. I've even seen an 8K screen at CES. And for me, the difference was not incredibly noticeable. Not that there weren't differences. If I really, really looked, I could probably tell. And the closer you get, the more you would be able to tell. But again, that's because the resolution is not just how many pixels are in the screen. It's how big is the screen. Because if the screen is smaller than those pixels, it, it just gives you that like a 720p display or uh, might be just as fine as 1080, depending upon the size of the screen, you know, and how far away you are. The further away you are, then the less it matters for the actual screen. Uh, so to give you some numbers, old high definition, the 720p version, the way that a lot of the old video game consoles, that's as, that's as good as they could show, um, is 1280 by 720 pixels or about 921,600 pixels per image. So when it's showing an image, that's how many pixels are active. Uh, then if you go up to 1080, uh, whether it's interlaced or progressive, um, which really only matters in the way that the video is played back and how, how those, the, the progression of video is shown. The resolution is 1920 by 1080. So that's about 2,073,600 pixels. So, you know, getting bigger there. A 2K screen is actually not that big of an improvement over 1080. And this might be why it didn't seem to really strike me as revolutionary when I first saw, saw 2K screens. 2K screens tend to be 2048 by 1080 pixels, which is about 2,211,840 pixels. So really you're talking about 200,000 more pixels than the 1080. That's not that big a jump because if you were to go to 4K ultra high definition, that's 3,840 by 2,160 pixels. 
that ends up being 8,294,400 pixels. So, you know, you're not, you're, you're just increasing the lines of pixels, uh, uh, that you can show on a screen, but those lines end up meaning that the total number of pixels that are displayed increases at a, a faster rate because you're looking at the area. And, and so if you go all the way up to an 8K television, that's 7,680 lines by 4,320 lines of pixels, which ends up being 33,177,600 pixels or about a little less than half of what our eyes could tell based upon that that example that Lauren gave. So these are increasing levels of resolution. The only question is, is it detectable to a casual observer and does it matter that much? And uh, I guess maybe if you have like a like a truly enormous television screen, then it would matter. And if you're sitting really close to it, then it would matter. Here's an interesting question, though. Do we want the highest possible level of resolution or um, at some point, does the lack of resolution actually add to our enjoyment of visual media? I, it's a good question. I think for, it's hard for me to answer that. I would say that resolution is less important to me as far as that goes. Like if you go super high resolution, that doesn't bother me so much. It's the frame rate that bugs me. Uh, well, the example that I always use in this kind of situation is is uh, Silent Hill. The first Silent Hill game um, was for the PlayStation One. It was um, they they were the processor was unable to create uh, create the visual background, so they added in fog effects to blur to blur out the stuff that they couldn't process, and it wound up being terrifically creepy and, and a really great addition to the film and and I would argue that in many filmic aspects like a like like the entire feel of noir came from the fact that they didn't have money to light sets um so <laughs> so it's it dark by necessity so dark by necessity and uh, and 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 it's gorgeous and people replicate that these days with a lot of of power and light and and film and and all of these gorgeous things that we that they literally could not use back in the day but have become this stylistic thing so yeah, I certainly I, depends. I certainly don't think that resolution like like a high resolution film is is better than a lower resolution film. There's no evidence to me that that's true. It's technically you might be able to argue it, but as far as its ability to tell a story in an, a way that impacts its audience, it, it has very little to do with it for me. Now granted if a movie is just in truly bad repair, and you're watching like a terrible print of an old film, that can be distracting. That can take you out of a movie just like that 3D experience you were talking about, Joe. Kind of t- It alerts you to the fact that you're watching a film and you don't lose yourself into that. Same kind of thing can happen if it's a really, really bad uh, uh, copy of a film. That's one of the reasons why I love digital, because you don't have to worry about degrading over time. Like the film itself is not going to degrade. Uh, but I don't think that the high resolution would bug me so much. But let, let, let's talk about frame rate a little bit. So, so Lauren, yeah. you haven't seen a movie in 48 frames per second. I have I've, not, no. I have not either. I have. But one of us has. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, well... Right. Tell us all about let, it. Let's, how, let's, how wonderful. Let's talk about let's talk about frame rate for a second okay. first. So the earliest frame rates were kind of all over the place. I mean, like way back in the era. For one thing, you, had, you know, if you go back far enough, you had cameras that were hand cranked, and so you had a hand cranked, you know, like a camera operator who was trying to crank a camera at a. Uh, uh, constant speed. Yeah, constant speed. Sometimes a little faster or a little slower on purpose in order to create a specific effect on the film for playback. 
uh, playback was going to be constant because the projectors they used were motorized. They didn't have someone actually turning a crank for the projector for, for, Actual film films, not just the little novelties that Home came out. Films yeah, not the, not the little novelty animations that came out or the, uh, the penny arcade type stuff that you would see, uh, but the actual movies that you would go to a cinema. Well, those frame rates back in those early days might be anywhere between 20 to 26 frames per second. So that means that within one second, your eye would see between 20 and 26 distinct pictures. And it's the playing back of these pictures at the speed that gives us that illusion of movement, that there are things on the screen moving around, as opposed to the fact that we are actually looking at a series of individual still, still photos, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so that's the whole basis of film there. Uh, once sound came along, then they really had to standardize things because while you can mess around with the the visual element of how many frames per second are being played back, sound we we detect changes in sound and it bothers us. So like if the pitch changes throughout a movie, I mean if you've ever seen any kind of film where they had a problem with the sound, that really gets your attention pretty quickly. So that's when they settled on 24 frames per second, really, and said this is the standard, uh, you know, in, for for films from here on out, and uh, and so this kind of set into our minds what a movie is, what a movie looks like beyond you know the how crisp or clear it is. The playback to us felt like this is the way a movie should go. It has this kind of element to it that no matter what genre you're watching, you get this kind of experience. And there's a certain amount of motion blur that goes into that. Like if something's moving very quickly and it's moving faster than what the 24 frames per second can handle to give you that smooth feeling, uh, that became part of the cinematic experience. And it's kind of something that we just sort of accept. Now, I suspect if you were to show a kid a movie at 48 frames per second and the kid had never really experienced 24 frames per second, it would be a totally different story than someone like me who grew up watching 24 frames per second. So I go see The Hobbit at 48 frames per second and it, you know, the 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 reasons for that that frame rate tend to be cited as a way of removing this flickering and uh, motion blur stuff and making it a more smooth uh, experience. Uh, to me, what it really seemed to do was make it all look like I was looking at movie sets. Not a, I wasn't losing myself in a world, a fantasy world. I was looking at a bunch of sets on a, on either on a, a location or in a studio. In fact, I got to a point where I could identify. I knew which shots were shot on location versus inside a soundstage because I could tell because that level of detail was so great that I was like, this looks artificial. So maybe is is what we're saying here that at a certain point too much information is bad? I think I think it it's too early to say because it may very well be that this just becomes what we accept movies to be in the future. You know, every time every time there's been a major actual switch in film, there is a knee-jerk reaction to say that this It's new, it's bad. Yeah, you know, when when Filmmakers started to make the switch from film to digital. There was a ton of discussion about that in films and film communities about does this make sense? Do we want to move away from this this venerable institution, this medium that has its own artistry and move to a fully digital environment? I think there was backlash against the talkies. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So <laughs> no I mean, one's going to see something like that. That's ridiculous. So yeah. so while while I'm sitting here and saying, you know, 48 frames per second was something I did not at all enjoy, uh, you know, that was it. Uh, it's a subjective experience. Someone else might very much like it. And again, if a kid saw it, a kid might think that's awesome. That looks great. And that's if you were to show that kid later on an older movie at 24 frames per second, maybe that kid would say. This is weird. But I mean, you know, it is maybe it's one of those things where the further away you get from fantasy, maybe the more effective those 48 frames per second will be. Because if it's in a world that is essentially our own world, where they're using as much real stuff as possible and as few set pieces and props as possible, then it may just be a perfect experience. But when it's something that's in a fantastical world where you have to buy into the fact that you are in a fantasy, then it's it's very distracting when you're sitting there and, and you look at something and think, I can totally tell that that's a prop as opposed to this is something that has lived in this world you know, and it has its own history. If you were to ask a character, where did you get that? They could tell you, oh, so, so and so the carpenter built this chair for me back in such and such. And, you know, you would totally believe it. But in the 48 frames per second one, you'd be like, where did you get that? Oh, props made it for me two days ago. <laughs> you know, so. So high frame rate, gimmick or not? Uh, I don't think it's a gimmick. I think it's sticking around. And I think, well, or at least, it's going to make a real go at it. I, you know, same thing could have been said for 3D a couple of years ago, especially in the home market, but that has kind of gone the other way. But there are, you know, some major filmmakers who have all talked about this, uh, James Cameron and, and, uh, Peter Jackson being the two that, you know, everyone has talked about. So maybe if there are a lot of negative reactions, we may see that, that switchover happen more slowly. I expect that that will eventually happen though. I think, I think it's, bound to happen. Now, the interesting thing to me is that, you know, I saw The Hobbit at, uh, you know, ultra high definition, 48 frames per second in 3D. I want to know how large that file was. <laughs> I mean, that <laughs> file had to be enormous. 3D, so you've got two sets of images. Ultra high definition, 48 frames per second. That means twice as many frames than in a normal film. How many pixels? Well, you would just look at one, one, <laughs> one image. I think it was a, I think they shot that on 4K cameras. They might have gotten higher than 4K. By the way, interesting little bit of trivia for all of our fans out there. The series Forward Thinking, the first few episodes were shot on the red one, which is the name of a camera, which is a 2K camera. And then some of the later episodes were shot on a 4K camera. So these ultra high definition cameras are what we're using to actually shoot the video series Forward Thinking. Later ones look better. Yeah, and it it also makes me feel more than a little self-conscious to think of an ultra-high-definition camera pointed at me. But your nose hairs are beautiful. Thank you. I actually do have to pluck those. TMI. I've got got nothing. Yeah. The the beautification process before an episode of Forward Thinking is... uh, is thorough. Feudal. It is mostly feudal. Aww, mostly I'm just feudal. Kidding. Thank you, Joe. Uh, so, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention before we sign off, you know, we talked all about the visual aspects, uh, was sound. The idea of using sound oh, to make yeah. it a more immersive experience. Did you know that the, technically the first, uh, surround sound movie, although it wasn't a true surround sound, was Fantasia. And so back in 1940, the Imagineers over at Disney, had come up with this idea that they wanted it to be a very immersive experience. I mean, this is a symphonic film where they wanted the music to affect the audience and not just be played at the same level throughout the entire 
uh, theater. So uh, any theater that was showing Fantasia in uh, in Fanta Sound, which is not what a Fanta sounds like when you open it. It's actually the name of what the the sound system they were using. It involved 54 loudspeakers what? to create that effect. 54. Like yeah, one it, for each instrument. It was incredibly <laughs> expensive. It was meant to help diffuse the sound throughout the theater so that any person sitting in any seat would have that experience of the music coming from the right right location at the right time. Uh, later on, we would have companies like Dolby come out with their own version of surround sound, which would involve multiple channels, like five-channel sound, where you would have three main speakers in the front, a center one, one on the right, one on the left, and two in the back. And that would allow you to soundscape your films and create that more immersive experience so that when a character hears something like a twig snap behind her as uh, Mr. Voorhees is making his way, you would hear the snap behind you as well to give you that sense of being put in the character's place and feeling that sense of terror. Or you're just wondering who's the next person who's going to get killed in some ridiculously uh, over-the-top <laughs> way. way. Yeah, yeah. Take my hand, Joe. I'm reaching towards you through the camera. <gasps> Guys, if you enjoyed this, please let us know. Send us some feedback. Tell us what you like about our shows. Tell us what you want us to talk about. What stuff about the future really has you excited? Uh, what, what, what are you curious about? You can email us. Our address is fwthinking at discovery.com or go to fwthinking.com. That's where we have the blog posts, the podcasts, the videos, all sorts of articles that are really, really interesting. We hope you enjoy them, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.
Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.